Friday night's dinner. How many of you, I won't ask you to, re, to let us know in case you're embarrassed about it, but how many of you remember what you had for dinner Friday night? Raise your hand. Okay, that's pretty good. That's decent. Um, Friday night's dinner. We, uh, we tend to have dinner as a family uh, as often as we are able. And uh, Friday night was, was no different. We sat around the table. And um, as I thought about sitting around a dinner table as a family and eating a meal together, something super common, something happening around the world all the time, um, I just thought about some, some factors about it. We had a lovely salad. So here's my salad sitting there, two different kinds of lettuce, iceberg lettuce and a little bit of red leaf lettuce. In my salad was a, uh, actually, no, the yellow bell pepper didn't make it in. We forgot that. But some wonderful tomatoes were in there. Uh, some little green onions were in there. Uh, red onions, because we're not prejudiced. We believe in both kinds of onions. Uh, cilantro was in there. Um, fresh ground pepper was on it. Uh, next to my salad was a nice plate of spaghetti uh, with some, with some uh, sauce on top of it. Uh, the table was set. I had a lovely family sitting around me, and I think I probably had water to drink. Here's why I'm telling you all of this. As I'm sitting here at my meal, at the dinner table, what I thought about was this, is that a simple dinner like that actually involves tons of people and tons of elements coming together. Even though we hardly think about it, think about this. Someone grew that lettuce, right? Someone that I'll probably never meet grew my lettuce for me. And worked hard, actually, at growing lettuce. Someone thought about how to get my iceberg lettuce from a field somewhere. It doesn't grow at the store, okay? To, to get it to the store nice and cold and fresh without wilting and all of that, someone put thought and energy into that, okay? In addition to that, someone, someone made and packaged our pasta, right, and put it together. My wife, back before we had kids, made pasta by hand. But those days are long gone. Now we chuck it in a pot and, uh, and we, we go from there. Um, someone actually bottled my water for me because our tap water is mediocre. Uh, someone made the glass that I drank out of. Everything, you know, this didn't happen on this particular meal, which is a minor miracle, but someone makes paper towels that on a regular basis we use to clean up spills that go on at my meals often. So here's the point. Now, now in addition to that, Everyone in our family had some role to play in our meal. Someone set the table. Someone cleaned the table. Someone did some hard work to prepare. Every single person participated at the meal and enjoyed the different, their different parts of it. Some enjoyed it more than others. It's always true that if someone at our table doesn't like what we're having at that particular meal, and in the Carlson household we go, that's part of being a family. Deal with it. Sometimes we're more gracious than that. Um, Here's the deal. We're, we're, a part of, we're a part of something so much bigger than we realize a lot of times. Something about being a, a, a part of a really big story is this. Uh, at the end of, of meals sometimes, not all the times, I don't want you to get, to get you thinking that, oh, the pastor's family always does this. It's not true. But once in a while, what we do as a family is we take a prayer request or, or a missionary couple that we have on our wall to keep us mindful of the world and fellow believers that are, that are partnering with us in sharing the gospel and being the love of Jesus around the world. And we happen to have gotten Kelly Miller's prayer letter recently. And Kelly Miller, we always read her prayer letter. 
and um, uh, we're, we're quite tight in there. The way we remind our kids of who's who, um, Ethan had a project in third grade where he, he sent flat Ethan, a little piece of paper, to someone, and they have to do a whole booklet. Well, Ethan sent his to Cambodia. And so Kelly Miller took Flat Ethan around on a motorcycle in a typhoon. I mean, he had the coolest project far and away at, at his school because his little Flat Ethan got to be a missionary for a week or so. So we just always say it's the, it's the person who had Flat Ethan, and our whole family goes, oh, that's who it is. So we're praying for Kelly Miller. Kelly had all kinds of prayer requests and praises, and each person at the table had a prayer request or a praise. And so we went around and we prayed for this. This is at the end of the meal. And... Just underscoring the fact that everyone at the table wants to have a part. The last person prayed. I think it was me. And I said, amen. And we were all done. And this little three-year-old voice says, my turn. <laughs> I had forgotten about Cassie. I didn't give Cassie a prayer request or a praise. And she let us know it immediately. And so without any further ado, she went right to prayer. And she just, and so I said amen, and then we all realized we weren't done praying yet, because she just led the revival going, and she started praying. She wanted her part in this as well. And I thought, man, that is so true, that at a very early age, stamped into us, is we don't want to be on the sidelines of a story. We don't want to just read about everyone else's story. We want to be a part of the story. We want to participate. That's part of God's call in us. I have two words for you on your, on your notes this morning at the start here. Involvement is that we all like to be a part. It's true, isn't it? Even for those who say, yeah, I like to be more of a behind-the-scenes person, you still like being a part of making that thing happen. Even if you aren't on the stage in the drama, you like that you wrote part of that script. We like to be a part of things. Secondly is the word influence. We all make a difference. Not, not we all like to make a difference. We all make a difference, period. So whether I feel like making a difference at my family at the dinner table that night or not, my presence is felt either by a glaring lack of participation or by being a pleasant part of things. Your presence is felt everywhere you go through the day. I put a poem in your, in your uh, notes this week that just says, your life today is going to touch tons of people. I mean, just being in this room, you're going to touch at least 10 people probably. And, and you may think, yeah, I have no influence, but you do have an influence. And how many times has someone brightened your day maybe by just smiling and looking you in the eyes and saying hello versus kind of gr- grunting by you? And you have the opportunity to make that same influence for positive or for negative. Here's where I'm going with this is that the story of Jesus is huge. The story that we've been invited into by the gospel is huge, and it's enthralling, and it's kind of all-encompassing. This morning's title, I just have tip of the iceberg. And we're basically wrapping up John this morning, and, and the way I read it, I just kind of read it, this, there's this, this neat kind of post-resurrection scenario that we're treated to that none of the other gospels really goes into, but it's kind of showing in story form some different characteristics, I guess you'd say, of... Um, of Jesus in resurrected form and how he relates to his disciples. Look at John chapter 21 and go all the way down to verse 25. We're going to take the last 10 or so verses here. But here's the way John puts it. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books 
that would be written. What he's saying here is that there is so much more to this than I've written down. But I conclude by pointing that out. The fact that we're invited into something that we'll never fully understand in this life was, was touched on a little bit last week as well. Here's some key words for Christians. And I hope they don't scare you. I hope they, I hope they awaken something in you and, 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 and call out to you in an inviting kind of a way. The word wonder, the word mystery, the word ambiguity. These are, these are key words to our faith story. And then I just spilled the other one. There's one more word that, that we could add to that, and that's the word faith, right? Faith is a huge part of this story that we're, that we're invited into. But like this iceberg, if you were standing on top of it, there's more than what we see. There's more than what we can personally experience going on. And that's so profoundly true. When you stop at a stoplight and you start to think on and pray for friends of yours who are in Nepal right now, translating God's word to people who don't have the Bible in their language. And you go, man, in some mysterious way, and it requires faith, I am right now participating in language translation in Nepal. And I'm at the corner of Hillsdale and Jarvis or whatever else. And that's a remarkable thing to to start to grasp that and think on that. Here's what we're doing this morning. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the Word. And on a typical Sunday, you hear a lot of time in the Word, a lot of time in singing, and maybe not as much time participating. And this morning, we're going to cut the sermon-type time for the sake of having a big, long response time. And the way the response time is going to work is we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And what a great way to, to wrap up John, and what a great way to pray these truths into our life. In addition to that, you're just going to hear some worship songs going on in the background. And you'll be invited to participate in with that as well. In addition to that, we'll be taking up our offering. And in addition to that, we'll be inviting you to come up as you take communion to drop off a prayer request up here in the bowl. And not just leave one, but but grab one. Grab one and start to pray for uh, fellow people in the family. And don't just pray for them today during the service. Pray for them throughout the week. We stay here on, on Peter and kind of his formal name, Simon Johnson, John's son, right? That's what Jesus uses here three different times. And if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard some messages on this passage before. And I want to just call to mind, because we've been in John for so long, this is Simon Johnson. This is the guy that for a long time has been doing the wrong things with the right motive. Let me just, let me just recap a couple of his highlights, okay? Just recently here in the story, there's this most inappropriate foot washing going on, right? And remember what, what, what Peter does? He says, I'll have no part in this. And Jesus says, well, you have to have a part of it. So then he's like, I'm all in. And he's like, well, you don't need to be all in. You don't need a bath. You just need to wash your feet. And he's just like, don't. I mean, at every turn, he's, he's doing the wrong thing. I think it's from a right motive, though. I really do. I think it's pure. Then he's asleep at his post three times. Remember what it says? It says, Peter did not know what to say. Third time he comes, he just doesn't even know what to say at that point. Is there a pure motive? Is there a right motive there? Yeah. In fact, Jesus calls it out. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Then he comes out swinging with fishermen's hands, right? And he's doing exactly opposite of what Jesus was all about in that moment. He didn't want bloodshed. He didn't want earlobes getting cut off. 
But because he had just woken up and wasn't in tune, man, he came out swinging with a sword. And what does Jesus do? He comes and cleans up the mess. Was the motive wrong? I don't think so. I think it was done out of a deep loyalty and a deep respect and a deep love for his Savior, Jesus. Was the action wrong? Absolutely. Because Jesus calls him out on it. Put away your sword, he says to Peter. Time and again, wrong thing with the right motives. So what I want to point out here, as we read starting in verse 15, is that it's pure grace for Jesus to reinstate Peter, pointing out his strong point, highlighting where he's strong. The way that he comes and reinstates Peter after three denials is he points out three times his love that Peter has for Jesus. And rather than being a dig or a jab, I think it's pure grace that he's pointing out an area that Peter's actually really strong in. He could have come and reinstated him by talking about his fallen actions. Peter, do you do the right thing in the right moment and say the right thing most of the time? Lord, you know I don't. No. Feed my sheep. Peter! Do you do the right things and say the right things and most of the time? No. I mean, do you see how that could have been? It could have just been a beatdown of Jesus. Instead, what he does is he comes, and I think he's highlighting what, what Peter's actually really good at. His love for Jesus. Look at, look at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, that's his formal name, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Interesting that... Jesus kind of breaks this seemingly kind of quiet meal. I wonder if Peter was silently comparing himself. I mean, can't Jesus read our thoughts? He knows our thoughts, doesn't he? He's proven that several times in this gospel alone. Maybe Peter's sitting there around the, the, the breakfast table just going, I totally love Jesus more than that person over there. I, that guy just didn't, he didn't get out of the boat and, you know, do a hundred yard swim. I did. In fact, I, I love Jesus more than anyone here. I wonder if Jesus breaks the silence of the conversation with this, because it seems to come a little bit out of nowhere. I mean, it wouldn't be shocking if you were sitting here thinking those thoughts, and then Jesus speaks up and says, do you really love me more than these? And he knows he wasn't saying that out loud. Here's his response. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. You know my thoughts. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then it says Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus asking a question here, Peter. Maybe Peter was comparing his mind, maybe he wasn't. But what we do know is that he's hurt. In essence, he's saying back, he says, yes, I really do love you. What, what more do you want from me? Why do you keep asking me this? It says he was hurt by it. Maybe like, like we would be hurt by it. Now, there's all kinds of directions you can go with this, and I've heard people do this, and I think sometimes we make a little bit too much out of the love verb that's used here, phileo and agape. And, and there's debate back and forth. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go read a commentary. You'll, you'll get brought up to speed on the argument. But basically, there are different words for love being used here. 
And sometimes John has actually used that in other places of the gospel just for kind of variety's sake. So it's hard to read maybe too much into that. I do think Jesus meets us where we're at in our level of response. Each time Peter's saying back, I do love you, I do phileo love you. Not the agape kind of sold out unconditional love. It's a little hard to translate in the English. We just don't kind of get that. And the third time, Jesus kind of, you know, comes down to this level of phileo and says, do you phileo love me? Instead of asking a third time the agape way. So, so rather than go off into a big study that, I would encourage you, go dive into that. That's interesting stuff. But here's some other things that I want to point out about this. One is that I do think it's significant that he asks him three times. I do think it's significant because he denies him three times. And there's this, there's this reinstatement. And there's something in Peter that absolutely knew when he was on the boat that things were okay between him and Jesus, or else he wouldn't have rushed back to him. You know what he would have done? He would have said, you guys go on ahead. I'm going to be cleaning nets. There's all kinds of work. Let me take care of it. You guys go hang out with Jesus. He would have avoided Jesus, wouldn't he? If he thought that there was relational strain there. But he knew that was good, so he jumps out of the boat to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. Again, I think it's absolutely pure grace for Jesus to go after Peter's love for him. Because he knew Peter could answer in the affirmative. He wasn't setting him up for some negative thing. He was setting him up for an affirmative. I think what's maybe most significant here, though, is that kind of in story form, although we're reading the story of this guy, Simon Johnson, who's going to become Pastor Peter, really what we're seeing is kind of our story enveloped into that. And this whole thing, we've been going through story, looking, looking for ourselves kind of in it. One thing I want to point out is this, that pastors are called by Jesus. Peter is being called out and singled out to a specific kind of work here. He's being called out to shepherd the flock of God, which in this New Testament way is going to be called the church. That's all it is. And he's being called out to shepherd the church and to feed and to tend lambs. A couple of things I just want to point out. The word elder, the word bishop, the word overseer. These are all translations of a very similar office. I don't see any distinction in the office. In fact, we've struggled with what to call our elders because our elders at this church, not by title alone, but by title and function, they function in exactly the same way that I do. We are servant, pastor, under shepherds, leaders. But that doesn't fit on business cards really well, so usually we shorten it to something else. But I actually resist the idea of elder and pastor because it gives some kind of an indication that there's, there's a dual office. And the scriptures sure seem to show that as a very, very similar, if not identical office. I believe it's the same office. They're to come along and to shepherd the people of God. So if I'm not eldering, if I'm not overseeing, I'm not doing my job. If our elders are not shepherding and pastoring and teaching, they're not doing their job. Why else would an elder of the church be called to be able to know how to teach? It's not just preach from a public setting like this. It's you better know your stuff. You better be able to come alongside, speak truth into people's lives, and walk with them through the tough stuff of the faith. That's what a pastor is called to do. Here are a couple of things pastors are are called to do. Interesting that the words feed and tend are used for sheep. Feed has the idea of spiritual food and water. It's not just large group setting. I say this all the time, but if you're... Spiritual diet consists of 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. You will be anemic. You will struggle. You will not grow. Period. This is never meant the, 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 the way you are meant to get your weekly meal. 
was kind of everyone looking one way and one person talking back to them, teaching the scriptures. However, people have gone the opposite way of that and said that the proclamation and preaching of God's word is no longer relevant. And I would say to that, the Bible has strong things to say to that, and we will never go that route. Because there's something powerful when God's word is preached. That's why if you ever go to a visiting church, or if I'm ever having a really bomb week, or someone comes up here and they're not your favorite speaker, get your Bible out, get your heart open, get your pen or pencil ready, and get ready to take notes, because it's God's word. And so God can take someone who's very unskilled and stammers through something. And if you're hearing God's word read, be ready to have your eyes opened. Be ready to have light shine into dark places of your life. So the preaching of God's word is powerful and effective, and we're going to continue to do that. That's part of the role of the pastor. That's why this idea of feeding sheep comes up that Jesus calls them to. He also says, tend. Some of your versions say, take care of my sheep. Tend my sheep. Take care of my sheep. What's involved in that? Without giving you all the scriptures, here are just a couple of things from scripture. Protecting from false teachers. It's important that there are shepherds, under shepherds to the senior shepherd, which is Jesus, that are shepherding the, the, the flock of God, that are keeping people from false teachers. And the Bible warns that some of them will arise from amongst you. So it's not the church down the street with a crazy doctrine. We've got to put up walls and get ready to fight against them. It's to talk about as a community and to keep going back to God's word and saying, is that really what God's word says? And so shepherds are to tend the flock from the danger of false doctrine, which leads many, many people astray. A second thing that tending tends to mean is this, guidance and leadership. And the Bible speaks to elders at one point, saying live a life in such a way that your, your faith may be evident and it can be an example to people. Again, I, I think we've gotten this wrong in America sometimes. I've ministered to several pastor's kids in my junior high and high school groups. And it seems like pastor's kids either loved being a pastor's kid or they hated it. The ones that hated it, here's why they hated it. They said, we feel like we're, you know, kind of, kind of held up and we don't get to be a normal, real family. Everyone gets to look in on our lives and make expectations about things. And I certainly don't have the answers to that, but I just knew, man, I'm raising pastor's kids. I better listen to pastor's kids and figure out what to do and what not to do. So in our household, we have this mantra, I never say, I never say as a, as a dad, don't you dare do that. That'll embarrass me as the pastor. I say, you know what? You don't speak that way in this house because a Carlson doesn't speak that way. That's not what we're doing. And that's, and that's the, the, the difference there. Not only are we to be examples and guide, but we're also to be building up and preparing the body for service. It's easy to see how this one gets wrong. And that is the pastor or elder or ministry leader who's running around like a chicken with their head cut off doing every last job. While people stand by and go, he's not doing that very good. I could do that way better. But it's kind of tiring. I'll just let him do it. And so they just sit back. Or maybe I'll just write an email and let him know he's not doing a very good job. You can, you, can, you can bet, in fact, I, I've had this conversation with several of you. You can bet, though, if you come into my office and you say, Dave, I've got a real concern. We have a need at this church, and it's not being done very well. My normal response 
is, man, it sure seems like you have a heart for that. God's given you a vision for what's wrong. Welcome to the team. You're now the leader of that. (laughs) Go and fix it. Meaning this, isn't it so easy to criticize? Man, the 49ers, this, that, and the other thing. You know what? You don't know jack about the NFL. So just, you know, we, we do that, though. We sit there and we think we know. We don't really know. I mean, that's part of the fun of sports is you get to sit there and be an armchair quarterback. But when you bring that into a community, that's really, really damaging. All of a sudden, you're trading blows and barbs of things you may have no idea about. So it's really easy for me to talk like this because we don't have a bunch of big underlying drama right now. But you get people together long enough, drama just follows. That's part of the byproduct, right? So let me pick on children's right now, which isn't under fire. But you come to me and say, man, our children's thing is a mess. My first thing I'll do is I'll say, what have you, what have you, what have you done with regard to talking to that teacher about that issue? What have you done with regard to talking about Je- to, to, to Jeff and Hannah about that issue? And I will point you back to the way you're supposed to do it, which is go to your brother or sister in love and be truthful and be, be gracious with them. A lot of people cop out by saying this. I could never say that to them. I say, then don't say it to me. Don't come and tell me. I can't help out. Frankly, I kind of stink at children's ministry. I do good with my own family, but I don't know what to do with a lot of kids. Jeff and Hannah do, and they're really skilled at it. But guess what? They've got blind spots. Go and talk to them. Go and figure it out. Building up and preparing the body for service is, is on the heart of Kel and on the heart of Jim and on the heart of myself and on the heart of Ben. I love working with these guys. None of us are in the rock star mode of going, we've got to handle this. We've got to figure this out. And here's what's happening. As we've, cre- as we've sought to create soil that says, God, we want to tend the soil. We want to weed it. We want to guard it. Would you grow things in the heart of your people? And so different things are springing up and sprouting up. And people are coming to us as leaders and saying, hey, what do you think about such and such? And we just go, that is so cool. And what's amazing is sometimes that person's idea is so in line with this person's, and these two had no idea. And we as an elder board have been praying along those lines. And we see God at work in his people doing his work in his places. And that's super exciting to be a part of. The whole idea of being called to a specific work is really powerful, but it's not just for pastors. I can tell you part of my story because it's my story and I happen to know it. But I think this is true across the board. And I'll let you know as an individual, I don't assume I should be a pastor in a local church year after year after year. That's something I go off and I reevaluate with the Lord periodically, kind of formally actually. Not because I'm unhappy and I want to get out of this. I love this. I'm as fulfilled in ministry as ever. And when I talk to people I haven't seen in a long time, I go, man, I just God's got me in a place I absolutely love. I can't tell you how much I love doing what I'm doing. But it's not beyond my reasoning and beyond my vision to say, God may want us to come alongside George and Stacy one day and go work in in an elderly home that needs to be built. They certainly won't put me on the building project part of things, but they might need some people uh, things to, 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 to go on down there. God may call us any number of places. So evaluate your calling. Evaluate your vocation. Look at what you're doing. My calling went like this. In high school, God grabbed a hold of my heart, even though I had been raised in the church. 17 years old, God made it abundantly clear that I needed to come forward to follow him in baptism. 
Today we're having a baptism class, by the way, in two weeks. Right behind there in that little window area is a baptistry. We'll be baptizing some folks. If you want to be baptized or find out more about what baptism is all about, come and check it out today after service. It wasn't a little till a little, a, a little while later, though, that I remember sitting in the sanctuary at Los Gatos Christian Church and saying the scariest words. I didn't say them out loud. I said them to the Lord, but they were so scary because I meant them with all my heart. I said, Lord, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. And it was that point I really sacrificed. I really laid down everything for me. And I, I just said, Lord, I'll do it. I'll do anything. And God began to open doors in some different ministry things, but he was also opening doors in architecture, which is what I thought I was going to go do. And so I started walking down these different roads, and I remember having different conversations along the way with my high school youth pastor, with my college uh, pastor, with, with different people that I really respected. And in the context of serving God as a junior high leader at Los Gatos Christian Church, studying to be an architect, God began to shift my focus, and God began to call me to give me a vision for full-time ministry. That scared me to death. I would have told you in high school, I never would stand in front of 100 100 people or so every week and talk. I love to talk, but not in front of a lot of people like that. And besides that, I'm called to be an architect. That's pretty clear in my mind. And God just slowly, in the context of serving, began to affirm a call in a totally different direction. And then he used a pretty dramatic thing in my life to kind of solidify it. <clears throat> Here's the, the bigger truth for those of you who say, well, yeah, I'm not called into missions and I don't feel called into being a pastor. That's because God has a body and we're called to a lot of different places. If we were all pastors, it would be a nightmare. Right? There's so many places I cannot get to where you guys live and reside and have influence and have skill. And God wants salt and light sprinkled throughout this entire neighborhood. Far be it from us to all be vocational pastors and hang out here and build giant office buildings where we all get to serve God together that way. That doesn't make any sense. So here's the bigger truth for those who say, well, I'm not called into vocational ministry, meaning full-time ministry. Here's 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 the truth. Serve Jesus out of love for him. Simon, son of John. Simon Johnson, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Simon Johnson, do you love me? Tend my lambs. Simon Johnson, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He is driving home the point. You were called to be a pastor, and your means and motivation had better be love. It better keep coming back to love for me. Here's, here's the remarkable thing about it, though. It's not just that we're to serve Jesus out of love for him. Some of you have served Jesus not out of love for him, but out of guilt, out of manipulation, out of trying to earn your way into God's good favor, uh, to make up for past sin because a cute guy or a cute girl was in that team. Uh, there are a thousand reasons why people try and serve God. It doesn't work. It sours, doesn't it? It certainly isn't sustainable. And he says, come and feed my sheep. Come and tend my lambs out of love for me. And he drives that home. The second part of that, though, is that love for Jesus results in serving him. Jesus wants you serving for the right reasons. That has to do kind of with our motive. He cares that we care about sheep, but how is equally important. Listen to 1 Peter 5.2, talking about shepherds, talking about pastors. He says, be shepherds of God's flock 
that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing. We're no longer talking about externals here. We're talking about the heart. And it would come across with people who have, who are serving you. You can tell if it's, if it's willingly or if it's because they must out of compulsion in some way. It says, as God want, wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. Does God care how I pastor this church? Absolutely. And he's going to hold me accountable to it. Does God care how you serve him? Absolutely he does. So if you come and you set up microphones, if you come and you serve children, if you come and you help direct parking, the way you do it when no one's looking out there is equally important as the fact that you're doing it. Don't be mistaken that 25 years of good Christian service somehow means anything in your faith walk. The how is equally important. And believe you me, I know we can go on missions trips, be committed, be up front for all the wrong reasons. And God says the how is, is hugely important. Also, though, Jesus' call, Jesus' call to follow is a call to sacrificial love. That is, that love will lead to labor. We say it this way. When you worship and you get plugged into community, it will result in sharing. It will result in good works. That's the way it goes. After establishing love here, uh, Jesus does this thing. He repeats the very first command he ever gave to, to Peter. Look at verse 19. He says it pretty simply. He just says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death with which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Remember his first command to Peter? Hey, you, put, put the next down, follow me. Here he is wrapping things up with Peter, and he's saying exactly the same thing. The most important job requirement for Peter as a pastor is that he's being called to follow. He's being called to love Jesus and follow Jesus. I think it's really telling what Jesus doesn't say to Peter and to disciples with the Great Commission. There's no thick manual. There's no list of books they should read. There's no school they need to have a diploma from. None of that. He simply says, love me, follow me. You want to know how to make disciples? That's how you do it. Keep loving me. Keep following me. That's how you do it. Verse 20 to 23, we're not going to go into it all, but essentially he's saying, he's saying, follow me. In fact, he indicates what kind of death Peter's going to die. He's going to die a, a martyr's death. And, and Peter's been given this, this, uh, this prophecy, really, this indication of, of how he's going to die. He's going to, his arms are going to be stretched out. That was crucifixion. He's going to be led to where he doesn't want to go. And what is, what is Peter's response? His response is like any of you with brothers have done a thousand times over. Uh, but what about him? You're going to die a martyr's death. Ah, but what about him? And that's what Peter does. He wants to know about the beloved disciple. He wants to know if this thing's fair. I'm sure that's a little bit scary. You know what's remarkable about Peter? After all these years to think about how he's going to die, knowing how he's going to die, you know how a tradition records that he was killed? He was hung upside down. Because he said, I, I'm not even worthy to be crucified in the same way my master and Lord was crucified. Put me upside down. You know how you stay alive when you're being crucified? You take your arms 
And you pull up so you can fill your lungs with air, and then you sag back down. I don't know how this works when you're upside down. But I just know that if I do a headstand for like 10 seconds, I'm like, I'm done. I need to rest for a couple hours. My head's filled with blood. Peter was hung upside down and killed that way by choice. Jesus predicted, your death is going to glorify me and you're going to follow me in death. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. We have this saying growing up when I was a kid, and it applied to 101 situations. Parents are brilliant at coming up with certain phrases that are just able to be used over and over again in a lot of different scenarios. And I'm now starting to figure this out. But this applied to homework. This applied to putting soccer cleats away, finishing your green beans, brushing your teeth, making your bed. I mean, you just go on and on. There's four boys in the house. What would often happen is this. What about him? You know what the phrase was my parents would say? Worry about yourself. Worry about yourself. The kids grabbed onto that because what happens is someone would say something. We'd say, worry about yourself. And we'd repeat back what mom and dad would say. We couldn't get in trouble because we were just mimicking what, what, what they had said. But we heard worry about yourself a lot. I heard worry about yourself as an answer to my gripes innumerable times. Worry about yourself. In essence, that's what Jesus is saying here. Kind of, kind of putting it in a little bit more uh, like, you know, adult-type language, I suppose, is this. Put this down in your notes. Concentrate on following where Jesus leads you. Concentrate on following where Jesus leads you. Second part of that is let others follow where Jesus leads them. Some of you have a very difficult time concentrating on just where Jesus is leading you. You want to know God's will for everyone else's life and, and talk about it. We have a word for that in life. It's called gossip. Stop it. Concentrate on where God's leading you. Here's another thing some people have a very hard time, especially some parents. And you can remind me of this. I'm a parent. Let others follow where Jesus is leading them. So if a buddy comes to you, I've had friends come to me in various times, say, Dave, I respect your opinion. We've been friends a long time. I know you'll shoot straight with me. I'm thinking this. What do you think? I go, man, that seems way out there. Let me think about it for a little bit. I'll pray on it. I'll search the scriptures on it. And I'll come back to that person. I'll say this. I've done this a lot of times. My gut instinct on this is that seems really wacky and out there. But I can't find a single, a single thing in Scripture that you're violating. I trust and know you to be a, a person filled with God's Holy Spirit. And my only caution to you as a, as a brother, as a guy who loves you intensely, is make sure this is from the Lord. Test the spirits, as First John says. But other than that, man, go for it. And let me know how it works out. That's letting other people follow where Jesus is leading them, even if it's not right on the exact same path as you're on. That's a challenge for some people. Worry about yourself. Here's what makes application hard for a pastor in a church that believes this to be true. The church is not a hierarchy where the leaders come around and tell those under them what God's will is for their life, how they should go about doing it, and then they go off and carry out the marching orders. Rather, the church is a living organism where we're all connected directly to the head, which is Jesus, and we're all functioning. Now, is there order to it? Absolutely. That's why God put leadership in place. That's why he's calling Peter out to be a pastor and to shepherd the church of God. 
But can you see why this makes coaching people in their faith walk so very difficult? I tend to really shun the one, two, three steps to saying yes to God and no to sin. I can preach a whole sermon on saying yes to God and no to sin. It's all through Scripture. But then how do you get to the end of it and say, Michael, here's what, one, two, here's what the one, two, three steps are. And know that that's true for Michael. Michael might be able to crank out one, two, three like that, and I haven't even touched on the motive of him or some interior struggle that's going on with him. And for him, doing these one, two, three steps all of a sudden enrolls him in the junior Pharisee program, and he starts to feel pretty good about himself. And meanwhile, inside, there's a whole sickness going on that I haven't touched on because I'm not God, and I don't know Michael well enough to, to really know that. And how can the one, two, three steps be applicable for everyone just in this room? Much less if we were to quadruple in size. So it really makes it challenging. Do you see that? To, to coach people along. And, and, and to, to somehow simplify to say, these are the five easy steps to a, to a great marriage. Those don't exist. Quit buying the book. I mean, if it, if it, if it has a title that audacious, don't buy it. And sometimes there's runaway bestsellers and people buy the book and they're really disappointed because they tried the five steps and it ain't changing. We're, we're a people that loves one, two, three, but it's so hard. There's no one size fits all. I wrap up with this and I would invite the band to, to come on up. <laughs> there is always more going on then you or I can quantify or claim to know or understand. So as we walk down following Jesus, can we just admit and lay down in humility and say, look, there's whole parts of this I really don't understand. It would be really audacious for me to share God's will for you for your life when I don't have a clue what it is for mine. We have this thing called wisdom right now going on in our children's program. They have a very simple definition. I absolutely love it. And we've been chewing on it as a family. It says this, find out the right thing to do, then go do it. Finding out the right thing to do is the application on most Sundays. I hope to whet your appetite. I hope to prompt you in some right directions. I hope a community group will help stir things in the right direction. But finding out what the right thing to do is part of wisdom. A whole second part to it is actually doing it, following, loving and following, heart and action together. These last two verses that that John gives to us basically is almost like a postscript. By the way, there's way more I could have written. These I wrote so that you'd believe and have life. I want you to know, I edited this down, and this whole point is that you'd believe and have life. But there is so much more I could have written. And chose not to. Part of how we try to design worship services here at Neighborhood is to create space for us to connect with God and interact with God. Talk about a tip of an iceberg thing. Talk about not understanding everything we're asked to do. It's really humbling and challenging. And we take it really seriously. This morning, I'm just super excited about where we're going from here because you're being invited to enter in by doing a few things. One of the ways you'll be invited into this story, in to participate, is to come and share in the Lord's table. Jesus left this for us. This is a simple meal that for a couple thousand years has been celebrated around the world in very similar ways to what we're about to do right here. 
in your notes this morning, I've got a, a whole segment on prayer, a whole segment on communion. I want you as community group leaders to take that and chew on that as a group this week. Pray these truths of John into your life this week. Another way you'll be invited to enter in is through music. We're going to have the band playing some music up here. Enter in by singing. Enter in by just enjoying and letting words wash over you this morning. You'll also be invited in by prayer. And as you come and drop your prayer request in here, grab a card, take it back to your seat, and start to pray for a brother and sister that's sitting in this room that you may not even know. And know that you're entering into mystery. You're entering into a really big part of the story. And finally, you'll be participating by giving. After a song, we're going to pass baskets. And it's remarkable to think that your faithful giving is keeping the work of what's going on here in this neighborhood alive and strong and being used. We want to be a church that is funneling money not to build up here and keep building a giant Christian amusement park. Woohoo! We think that'll win the lost. We think this ought to be a place that, that money's just going through. If we're doing it right, there's a lot of money flowing through here. That's what this is about. 1 Corinthians 13.12 from the message reads this way. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the, sh- and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. We'll see it all as clearly as God sees us. Knowing Him directly, just as He knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. Father, as we participate now with song and communion and giving and prayer, We recognize that it's all a shell and lifeless religion unless you're at the very center of it. God, we're amazed this morning that in your brilliant wisdom, you invited me, you invited us as human beings right into the very center of the story and yet without making us the center of the story. Jesus, we affirm this morning with our lips, with our hearts, with our actions, with our attitudes, with our wallets, that you are the center of it all. We praise you, God, for not making this whole thing about us. We confess that we would topple the whole thing if that were true. We want to come humbly and worship you and acknowledge what we sang before, that you are a great God. And yet we marvel and are humbled that you've elevated us to a place of significance and influence, each person in this room. We thank you, Lord, for the relationship we have with you. In Jesus' name, amen.